It has been a, a great morning um, if conviction is a great thing. And it is. And we were just singing that song. That is one of my favorite songs. And I, I pray that when we sing that and I watch you worship and I think about my own heart and I, I think, gosh, I, I know that's not always true in my heart, but I want it to be true all the time. That God, you have no rival. You have no equal. There's no other name. What a powerful name it is, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, as a youth pastor, I, and I've been here for a long time, I've been doing youth ministry a long time, uh, you normally always start a message with something to kind of get people interested, a story to draw people in, and you're not going to get that today because we have a lot to cover, and so we're going to dig right in. And to be perfectly honest, if you are not enthralled by these couple stories in the book of Acts that we've been in the last couple of weeks, I, you don't have a pulse. I mean, I, I don't, you might as well just start sleeping right now. So let's open to the book of Acts chapter 19 and, uh, and kind of take it away from there. Give you a little bit of a reminder of, of where we've been. Uh, obviously traveling through the book of Acts and Paul the apostle is now on his missionary journeys. He's in his third missionary journey, kind of coming to the close of it. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been seeing radical responses to the gospel and also radical opposition to the gospel. And in last week, at the end of the week, there was this crazy story, the, the sons of Sceva, where basically people had realized that Paul was uh, casting out demons and healing people. And three words that I didn't think I would see together in the New Testament, itinerant Jewish exorcists. I didn't even know that was a thing, but evidently in the Bible that is a thing. Itinerant Jewish exorcists wanted to claim the name of Jesus in order to basically probably gain wealth from also exercising demons from people. And they come to a demon-possessed man and they say, hey, in the name of the Jesus that Paul talks about, come out of him. And the demon says, who are you? Like, I know Jesus, I know Paul, I don't know you. And then he takes the seven men, the one demon-possessed man, takes the seven men, beats them senseless, rips off their clothes, and sends them running naked from the house. That's a story, right? There is crazy stuff going on in the book of Acts. And on the heels of that story, and in the, the process of Paul being on this third section of his missionary journey, we find ourselves today. So come with me. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now after those events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And at about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business, this business of making uh, little silver idols and trinkets, from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
When they heard this, they were enraged, crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So what's going on here? The message of the gospel is spreading. Uh, People are being radically changed. Lives are being changed. And I love this story because it's one of the the kind of plainest, most forward, most pragmatic stories, proclamations in Acts. There's not a lot of detective work. Demetrius basically just says it right out loud. Hey, Paul is preaching the gospel, people are getting saved, and instead of worshiping our little idols that we make out of silver that make us money, they're not worshiping those anymore. They're worshiping God, the one true God. And because they are, we're losing money. Because they are, our business is in ruin. What are we going to do about this? We have to give the great goddess Artemis a name again. We have to incite a riot over this in order to deal with this major problem that we are having in Ephesus. Now you might think, okay, what kind of a scene is this? Why is this a big deal? This is actually a huge deal. And I wanted you to see, I I don't know if if, uh, any of the other pastors have, I've been gone for a few weeks over the summer, so I don't know if any of the pastors have shown you an image of this, so I apologize if it's rehashing something, but I wanted to show you a map of Paul's missionary journeys to give you an idea of why this is such a widespread issue for Demetrius and the silversmiths, okay? Paul is on his third missionary journey, which means that these arrows represent everywhere that Paul has been. He's been traveling all over the place for the last eight plus years, all over Greece, all over Asia, all over what is modern day, basically Syria and Israel and Jordan and Greece. He's been to all these cities setting up churches and seeing radical conversions, radical transformation of life in all these places for eight years. So when Demetrius says, hey, this isn't just a problem in Ephesus for us, We're seeing radical conversion all over Asia, and that's a problem for us. Why? Because what what, uh, Demetrius is talking about in Ephesus is not just a little local god that they worship, not just a little local temple that, you know, they've built to this Artemis and he's pandering his little, you know, wares. This was basically like the religious Disneyland of the ancient world. This is where people went. This is where people came to worship the great goddess Artemis and to buy little trinkets. So you can imagine anything like that that was a tourist destination immediately. Like all religions, all religions offer a way to make money. All religions seem to offer a way to profit off the back of the religion. And that's exactly what Demetrius is doing. He recognizes that here in Ephesus we have this incredible God, we have this incredible temple. And we have set a culture in motion that basically invites people to come and visit and we sell them our wares and we make a bunch of money. Now, to give you a scope of how big this is and what was going on and who Artemis was and why it meant something to them, Artemis in kind of ancient Greek mythology was the the goddess of the hunt. But she had become many iterations and now at this point she had been the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of the moon, but now she is the goddess of fertility. And in being the goddess of fertility, she is not just the goddess of fertility in human reproduction, but also in crops and agriculture. She basically is the goddess that decides whether to bless or not bless in their minds 
to bless or not bless this entire city and region financially by giving them crops. Business, money, mostly due to crops back in their culture and in that time. So basically, in worshiping Artemis, they're worshiping their opportunity to make money. They're worshiping the God of financial independence, the God of financial blessings. And this God they had built a temple to that was 425 feet long, 225 feet wide. It had 127 pillars that were 60 feet tall, all out of solid marble. This dwarfed the Parthenon in Athens. It was well over double the size of the Parthenon. It was huge. People came from all over to see it, all over to worship at it. And so you can understand why Demetrius would be getting a little bent out of shape when all of a sudden all these patrons who used to come and buy stuff from them were not doing it anymore because of the radical effects of the gospel shared by Paul and his disciples. It's a pretty amazing story. It's a pretty amazing event. And you can also understand, too, why though Luke seems to present this in fairly tame language, this was not a tame gathering. This was a riot. Demetrius was trying to incite something that was huge that was going to have most likely violent ends. You see, when it says that basically when they heard this, they were enraged and they yelled out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city, think the city in verse 29, was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Let me set the scene. Demetrius is upset. He says, how do I get this to go viral? I want people to know about this. Well, he didn't have Snapchat. He didn't have Twitter. He didn't have Facebook Live. He didn't have YouTube. But he wanted a viral response to this. They didn't even have a newspaper. Well, how did they get information? They got information by word of mouth. They got information by being around the town square. The town square, which had a lot of markets and a main street and everything, was not just a place to shop and do business. It was a place where you got information. So when he begins to yell about these things, people are literally coming out of their homes. Then this guy tells this guy, this guy tells this guy, and they're rushing down to the town square to the main street of the town. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, we got a ton of people. We need to go deal with this. We're going to drag these two guys that are Paul's companions. They just get washed up in it. Like, we're going to take them down there. We're going to beat the truth out of them. We're going to tell them what we, what we think. And they're rushing down to the theater. Now, this is not a small theater. This is not like a little movie theater in a small town. This is an outdoor theater that seats over 20,000 people. We're talking about thousands of people rushing the streets and heading to go have a meeting. And they're all angry. And let's kind of catch the tone of what's going on so that you understand what the scene is like. In verse 32, I love this description. Now some cried out one thing and some cried out another. For the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Perfect recipe for a riot. Someone over here yelling, yeah, I hate that guy, yeah, no, he's the best, I love it. Who are we talking about? And then half of them were like, yeah, I came because I saw a lot of people running this way. I'm excited to be here. Are we going to get to see someone get stoned? Like, it was a classic, like, mass chaos. I love that. Half of them didn't know why they were there. We're just here, ready, you know. And into that scene... Paul is told by multiple people, hey, do not come down here. 
That's another way we know this was serious. Paul oftentimes would say, no, 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 I will disarm this, okay? We're under Roman rule. I'm a Roman citizen. They're not going to mess with me. They're not going to touch me because that would have really bad, really bad consequences for them. I'll come down and make a defense. I feel safe because I'm a Roman citizen. In this situation, his disciples tell him, do not go down there. It's dangerous. And then the Asiarchs, which are basically kind of high-ranking officials in the community, tell him, do not come down here. This is not going to be good for you. So as I read this story and I get to this part of the story, I'm thinking, man, this does not look good for the Christians. I really feel bad for Gaius and Aristarchus. They were Paul's friends, and now they're going to get beat proxy for Paul. And I'm thinking, this is probably going to end poorly because we've seen this happen before. But let's read on and see what happens. Verse 33. Now some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning his hand, wanted to make a defense. But when they recognized it was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So their answer to someone trying to speak that they didn't want to hear was to yell for two hours the same thing over and over and over again. It's a very adult way to handle things, right? I want ice cream. No, I want ice cream. I want ice cream again. No, I want ice cream. Give me ice cream. I mean, essentially, this is what they're doing. And why did they not want to hear from Alexander? Because even though along through the Gospels and along through Acts, we see a lot of opposition to Jesus from the Jews, in this case, they were in unison, right? Because the Gentiles, the Romans and the Greeks, they were worshiping idols. The Jews, whether they believed in Jesus or not, they believed in one true God. Like, don't worship idols. Like, I mean, you, you read anything in the Old Testament and you know don't worship idols, Right? So the Jews, they go, we don't want to hear from him. No, we don't want to hear from him. You've stolen our business. You've stolen our livelihood. These wonderful silver trinkets that we get to sell all the time, we're selling less of them, and this is terrible. So don't, we're not listening to him. So now we get a little bit of order. Verse 35. And when the town clerk, another person who would have had a high rank in the city, quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus... Who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? The sacred stone that fell from the sky, by the way, was a meteorite that fell from the sky and landed near Ephesus. And their interpretation of this meteorite landing, because it was a small thing that looked like it could have been like a figurine, they decided that this was Artemis sending her image to them. And that's where they based the copies of how to make these things that they were selling, like little copies of the temple, little copies of a thing that they thought looked like Artemis. So they have the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have been brought, or, or rather, you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. So this guy is actually kind of making a defense for him. I mean, I thought they'd be stoning him by now or at least taking him to prison, and he's making a defense for him. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly." It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to see what I would have expected to happen not be the thing that happens. I, I was ready for something really bad and negative to happen and then something really good and kind of amazing happens. Win one for the Christians, right? 
what's occurring here? What's happening? We are seeing radical transformation of a community and a culture based on the proclamation and the living out of the gospel. It's really amazing. And as I read it and as I began to kind of interact with it and think about it, I began to think, okay, so what does this mean to us? And the question immediately came into my mind. If this is going on there, if this is what's happening when people are radically living for Christ, because let's remember, at the end of uh, the Sons of Sceva story, right, many of the people who were messing around with magic and messing around with casting spells and all sorts of stuff that they thought they believed in came and burned all their magic books. And we're talking a huge bonfire. It said it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of all these books. We're talking millions of dollars of books. They all turned from the idol of magic and all turned from these things and turned towards Jesus. So we see that demonstration. We've seen it in other places in Acts. And now we're to a point where Asia is being transformed, where Ephesus is being transformed, where it's taking over to the point that Demetrius and the silversmiths felt like they needed to do something about it, but it didn't even matter. They couldn't do anything about it. The gospel was transforming a culture. It was changing a culture. It was pushing back against the idolatry of the day. And if that was happening there, I have to ask the question, why isn't it happening here? Why isn't it happening now? I have been convicted by this and left to assume that possibly, maybe not possibly, maybe probably, our love for the gospel and in turn, our love for God is not as big as our love for our idols. And you say, well, wait a second, we don't worship Artemis. We're not that stupid. We're not that silly anymore. We're not bowing down to silver images and little statuettes and all that kind of stuff. And some of you are really sharp and you're already getting past the kind of the next conclusion going, oh, okay, I get it. We have our idols. Yes, we do. I am not glad to proclaim that idols are alive and well in Gilbert, Arizona. They're alive and well all over the United States and all over the world. The only thing that's happened is we've become more sophisticated with our idolatry, right? I mean, think about the ancient world. What were their idols based on? What did they have idols of? They had, they had a god to the sun. They had a god to the moon. They had a god for rain. They had a god for fertility. They had a god for crops. They even had gods for leisure and hobbies. They basically looked at everything that they needed and everything that they wanted and everything that they desired and said, hey, we're going to have a god for that that we can worship in hopes of getting stuff. It's classic religion. I do something for him and he owes me something. I do something for her and she owes me something. All we've done in our world today is we've removed the middleman. We don't need the little statuette anymore. We don't need to worship the God of money. We'll just worship money. We don't need to worship the God of my hobbies and leisure. We will just worship the hobbies and the leisure. I don't need the God of control or the God of power or the sun. I will just worship those things straight up. We've become either more sophisticated or more shallow. I can't exactly decide which one. But anything, anything that we place our hope or our satisfaction, or our dependence upon other than God is an idol. And here's the reality. I think sometimes I think in such like very concrete methods, like I either, I either worship God or I worship the idol. And if I tell myself I'm not worshiping the idol, then I must be worshiping God. It's not that simple. We're guilty of idol worship every day. 
We're guilty of vacillating back and forth between a love for God and, and a love for other things all the time. And that's even if we're a Christian who's trying the best to do everything we can to love God more than anything else. I mean, what is an idol ultimately? It can literally be anything. Anything that you place at any moment of your life above God is an idol. An idol is when you look to anything to give you what only God can give you. Hope, peace, meaning, identity. These are things we find in God, but man, we're supposed to find them in God, but we find them in other things. Just like the Ephesians found those things in Artemis because they thought she would benefit them in a business sense financially, we do that too. Choose your poison. It's anything in life that is so central to your life that your life would not have meaning if you lost it. So as we look at this story, I, I want to glean from the story what are we supposed to do with this? If I look at my world around me, this community, and I go, okay, that is awesome. What happened in this story is awesome, that the gospel was so affecting their culture that it couldn't be stopped. So affecting their culture that it beat down the idol of their culture. I want that to happen here. So I just want to give you two things that we see from this story, or two things the story shows us, and then a couple ways that we should respond to it. Number one, cultures change, but people really don't. We see this in this story, right? Cultures change. We don't live in Ephesus anymore. We don't make the little silver statues. We got all that, right? We don't worship the same idols. Our culture has changed. And sometimes that makes us think we're not as stupid as those people or as silly as those people, right? But just think about this a second. What were Demetrius and the silversmiths really doing? What were they doing? They were businessmen who were getting together to strategize how to create demand for a product that they were selling that we don't need. Yeah, you're right. Now that I say that, it, that sounds like something that must only be back then. We don't have that today anymore, do we? Did you catch the sarcasm there? Like, that is the idolatry of today for many people in America. In fact, that is the American way. The American way is create an advertisement that produces need for a product that you don't need so that you will spend money on it and somebody else will make money on it. We're not that much different. We worship our idols just like they did. They might be different. They might have different names. We might feel more sophisticated about it, less foolish, but we're not. We're the same. Cultures change, people don't. And the second thing is this. I notice out of the story right away, the conviction runs deep. The gospel is supposed to change culture. The gospel is supposed to change culture. It's not just this individual thing that secures my place in heaven. It's not just this individual thing where I get to sit in that chair and go, I am really glad, glad that I'm not going to hell and I get to go to heaven. That's awesome. That truth is great. But that's not the sole purpose of the gospel. The gospel can't end there. But the gospel is supposed to send us on mission. The gospel is supposed to ignite us with a fire that desires to live for Christ. A type of revival that happened in Ephesus and in Asia does not occur because people got saved. It happens when people live like Christians and push back and challenge and destroy the idols in their own heart. And it begins to change culture. And so I ask the tough question, 
Is our love of our own idols blocking the spread of the gospel and cultural change that we long to see, that we talk about wanting to see? Or even more specific, is cultural change in Gilbert, Chandler, and Mesa waiting for us to stop worshiping idols and begin worshiping God and God alone all the time? One of the things I love about our church, because I say these things and they feel very, very weighty and very, very heavy. I I thought the thoughts, I received them as I was reading the Bible and I I can't escape this. Like I I can't get away from this. One of the things I love about our church is that Tim doesn't typically mince words. He just gives it to us straight. And I love that. We have a congregation that's, used to getting hit between the eyes with a rock. And I, I love that you appreciate that because I would feel really, really bad if you didn't because this is one of those things. This is one of those things, a call for repentance. You know how we sang that song, you have no rival, you have no equal, there's no other? This is asking the question, does God have a rival in my life? Does he have an equal in my life? Is Jesus a beautiful name to me all the time? Is it a powerful name to me all the time? So what do we do? What do we do? I just got two things. Two things that we need to do. Here's the first one. And it it might seem a little bit odd, but I was having a conversation uh, with my son and my daughter on the way home from church last week, which was awesome to be able to talk with them about the message And um, I hope we have a talk about the message this week on the way home and they tell me how awesome it was and how much they learned from it and that it was the greatest thing they ever heard. We were having a conversation and something that came up was the fact that it really seemed like in the story of the sons of Sceva when we see this radical transformation of all these people burning all these books, that fear was an incredible motivator. And in fact, I started to think about it, and I thought, you know, in Acts chapter 5, it talks about fear. In Acts chapter 9, it talks about fear. In Acts chapter 11, it talks about fear. In Acts chapter 16, it talks about fear. You want to know one thing that we need to do more, I think? We need to fear God. We need to be God-fearing people. I think in every generation, we tend to theologically swing in different directions, And I love the fact that we get more truth out of some of the things that we swing towards. Like, for instance, if I take a huge swing towards grace and love, right, I don't ever want to diminish the grace and the love of God that found me in my sin and reached down to me when I could do nothing to save myself and save me. I don't ever want to diminish that. God is fully those things. But he's also fully powerful. He is also fully authoritative. He is also fully righteous. He is also fully holy. He is also the God that in Exodus, when Moses said, show me your glory, God said, "Uh, I don't think you want to see that because it will melt your face off. We need to fear God. We need to recognize that God is equally every part of his character. His grace and love don't make me not fear him. His grace and love don't diminish his power and his authority. We need to have a little bit of holy terror. When I was 17, I had a Jeep and I used to work on it in my dad's garage. And one one day I was underneath the Jeep 
And every time I do that, when I'm like under a car or in a position where like my senses are dulled a little bit, like one sense, like I can't see as much, everything else goes up and I feel like someone's watching me. I don't know if I'm just crazy or if you feel this too, but like other senses go up and you feel like in your peripheral vision, like you see things all the time, like what's going on. Well, that was going off, but this was for good reason. Because all of a sudden I saw walking into my garage a dog. Well, it wouldn't be a huge problem. I had dogs, but this was not my dog. This dog was ginormous. This dog was a Rottweiler. This was not a dog that I knew. This dog looked mean and mangy and was baring his teeth. And I'm laying under the car praying that this dog doesn't notice that I'm there. And of course, as, as God would have it, he, God has a great sense of humor. Because I remember this vividly. I'm like thinking, if I'm really quiet, he'll go away. And he's walking back and forth, getting closer to the car with every little loop. Every little loop, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until he's standing like right where I am underneath the car. He looks underneath the car with that big, mangy, ugly face. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is the moment I die. He's going to eat my face off. I probably peed my pants a little bit. I mean, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to put up a fight. I'm, I mean, this is, this is not going to be easy for you, Rottweiler. And so I, I start to open my mouth to say something, and he starts licking my face. And I'm like, Whew. A moment like that of terror is something that I think I tried to, like, talk myself out of when it came to the fear of the Lord. Like, I understand words like reverence, honor, respect, a holy reverence for God, like that's what the fear of the Lord is. But you know what I can't escape? The word literally means terror. The word in the Greek, phobo, where we get our word phobia from, is like a person who has a phobia. There's something in it that's terrifying. And it makes sense if you think about who God is. But I think we get so confused because we look at passages like 2 Timothy 1, chapter 7, that says we're not given a spirit of fear. Or 1 John 4.18 that says perfect love casts out all fear. And we well, what is wait, I don't understand. If, if these things are true, I'm not supposed to fear. But then in Psalms 111.10 it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 1.7 it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So which one is it, God? Here's the deal. I'm supposed to have such an overwhelming fear of the power, the authority, the justice of God that I have no room for fear of anything else. Nothing else matters. Why, why would I fear anything when the biggest, baddest, like, like, the, the, like the, the thing that could destroy me quicker, faster, more than anything in the world, like that's in front of me. Now here's the key. I know that I'm fearing God when I consistently have to remind myself of God's goodness. I know that I'm fearing God when I consistently have to go, whoa, I do not want to be on the wrong side of that, but God is love and God is gracious. And God is good. I remember the quote from, uh, I, I don't remember which book it is, but it's in the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis says this incredibly, and I, I love his writing. But when um, the, the character Susan is going to go meet Aslan for the first time, Aslan is the character in the allegory that represents Jesus, essentially. And she's going to go meet him, and she thought that this was a man that she was going to go meet. And Mr. Beaver basically says, no, he's, he's a lion. And she goes, oh, man, I, I'm, gonna, I'm quite fearful to go and, and meet a lion. Is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he is good. He is the king. And that's what we need to remind ourselves. God is not safe, but he is good. 
And that holy fear should push us towards obedience and slaying the idols that are in our hearts. The things that we place in between us and God. The things that in moments of every single day we decide are more important than God. The things that we decide we are going to find our hope in instead of God. So if we fear God, we are going to want to do this next thing. We're going to want to attack our idols. Now, we could spend, I mean, hours delving into what idolatry looks like in your life. And there is no way, there's no way that I could ever think of trying to apply to each person in this room the idol that you most love to worship or the combination of idols that you most love to worship instead of God. But I trust the Holy Spirit. And I trust that the Spirit will. And so as we close, I'm just going to kind of give you a list of some of them that came to my attention as I was reading this passage and studying for this message. But before we do that, I want to take a moment and pray. And I want to ask that the Spirit of God will reveal and convict and challenge us in the categories where we have held idols in our heart. So let's pray. And if you're bold enough, pray this in your own heart with me. Father, we come before you. And God, I don't just pray this prayer for the people who are here. I pray this prayer for me. God, over and over again, God, would you reveal the idols of our heart. God, as we go through this list of things that are popular idols for us, God, I pray that you would cement and convict each person's heart in this room where you would have them confess. God, even if there's something that I don't read, God, would you work in the hearts of people here? God, convict us where we need convict us. Challenge us where we need challenged. God, I desperately want to see something happen like happened in this story, and I know, I know that if we don't love you, if we don't love your gospel, if we are not committed to who you are and the worship of you more than the worship of our idols, we are not going to see this. I pray this in your name. Amen. There are many kinds of idols. Many kinds of things that we worship, and most of us worship multiple or combinations. And the first type or category that I thought of was personal idols. Money. Do we love money more than God? How often? Do we love security more than God? Because money is what most often gives us security. Are we chasing it in ways that are not pleasing to him? Another personal idol is romance or romantic love. My spouse, my wife, is probably one of the greatest temptations for me to idolize. If I think about something and I go, okay, God, if you took that away or allowed that to be taken away from me, I do not know what I would do. I don't know how I would go on praising you. I don't know how I would go on living for you if you took that away. That's an idol. Do we idolize our spouses? Do we place them in a position where they should not be above God? The same would go for our children. Do we idolize our children? They're awesome, incredible gifts of God. But if I, in my heart of hearts, know I can't survive, I can't make it, God, I can't keep loving you and living for you if you are in control and you allow one of them to be taken from me. Do we idolize our children? Maybe we prop them up and we find ourselves not parenting them correctly because we love them so much or we say that we love them so much. 
Do we hold them as idols? There's also religious idols. Maybe we're in love with the truth. We're in love with doctrine. We're in love with knowing all the right things, but we're not truly in love with God. We have replaced the creator for a created thing. Maybe we're in love with morality. I love the fact that maybe you love the fact or that I can say that I live better than somebody else. And in our heart of hearts, even though I know this is, you would never say this, right? That I really deserve a little bit of love from God. At least I deserve more love from God than somebody else because I'm better than they are. We would never say that, right? We know too much to say that. But we think it. We act like it. Our emotions take us there sometimes that based on my actions, God should love me more than somebody else. We love our morality. The sneaky, deceptive thing about idols is that Satan just loves to push us down a road that is right and then take us past it. 80 to 90% of our devotion to a lot of idols is a good thing. You're supposed to love your kids. You're supposed to love your wife. You're supposed to want to provide for people and provide for your family. The person who worships money says they're just a hard worker or they just want to provide for their family. The person who idolizes their children just says, I love them. 80 to 90% of that devotion is great. And then I tip over past and I'm like, no, God, you can't have that. No, God, I'm not okay with that. No, God, I need that back. I need control of that, which is another idol, by the way. We have conceptual idols. We have idols of control and comfort and pleasing people and importance. I want the glory for what I do. And don't even get me started if you give somebody else the praise and acclamation for something that I did. I'm going to find some sneaky way to let you know that it was me who was responsible for that so that you are for sure going to know that you gave the glory to the wrong person. Anybody guilty of that? The subversive email, the passive-aggressive post. We serve these things, we idolize these things. Sometimes it's a really, really practical thing. And there's stuff underlying it, of course, but drugs, alcohol, addictions, those are things that we idolize and we turn to instead of God. We want an escape from reality. We want to escape from something. We want freedom from something. And we turn to those things and we go, no, 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 that is better than God, even if it's only for a moment. And the more that we do this, the more that we give into this, and the less that we worship God and worship him alone, we're never going to see this. We're never going to see the exceptional church making radical effects on culture. And that's not the point. A woman came up to me uh, afterwards, uh, after the last service, and said, you know, as a young woman, I really thought that I was going to change the world, and what became an idol for me was cultural change. You see how sneaky idols are? The thing that we're talking about that would be awesome to see can become an idol for you. Like, I loved that and thought I was a failure and thought that's where I could find my hope. I would have meaning if I did cultural change. That's not the point. The point is that we are so in love with Jesus that no idol is going to take our love of him away and the byproduct of that is cultural change. It has to be. Are we willing to attack those idols? The idols we see around us all the time, individualism, self, a protection of my rights at all costs, placing hope in, in theories and political agendas and ideologies, idolatry, freedom, the American way, freedom. Don't take my freedom away. Don't take my rights away. Those are mine. Those are God-given by the greatest country on the earth, God's America. Idolatry. So what do we do? How do we defeat it? This is going to sound simple. I hate that I even have to think about this and think 
is there some sexier way that I can say it? Is there some other way that I can do it? It's Jesus. We need more of him all the time. We need to be together. We need to remind one another. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to tell ourselves those idols, those things that God identifies like this is not better than Jesus. And I know that I'm going to struggle with this tomorrow and I'll probably struggle with it the next day and I'm going to have to keep saying that Jesus is better. I'm going to have to keep reminding myself and I'm going to remind my friends and I'm going to remind my family God is better. That's why we don't forsake the assembling together as it says in Hebrews. We don't forsake it because we're weak and we're prone to idol worship. Our hearts are idol factories. We can make them up better. We are so creative. We need each other and we need the reminder of Jesus all the time. So I'll leave you with one practical thing that we've given to our students a bunch when we deal with things like this. And here's what it is. If God has identified in your heart or you've come to some conviction like, yeah, definitely one, two, three, four, five of those things hit me between the eyes. And I know that I struggle with that level of idolatry in some subject, some topic, right? Write it down. Put it on a note card. Tape it to your mirror. Put it on your dashboard. And let it be a reminder to you that daily I'm going to give my worship to Jesus. Daily I'm going to tell myself and know, know that it is true. He is better. This idol will not have me. Let it be a practical reminder to you. And let's pray that as we fall in love with Jesus more, as we see him as better and we see the failing of our idols, that God would use us to change the culture by the power of the gospel because of what he's doing in our lives. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for today, for everything that you've given us. God, I thank you so much for this passage in Acts and God, the conviction that it brings. God, it's so good to be under the instruction of your word. And I say that for me personally, that when I read this and I dig into it, God, I receive such conviction. God, I pray that you would deal with our hearts. God, I pray that you would deal graciously, but I also pray that you would deal powerfully. God, um, make us a church that, as Tim has been saying since the beginning of this, God, an exceptional church that is on mission for you, affecting change in our culture. God, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.